This is one, into, one of 200, the New Zealand and International Politics Podcast. You're here with your hosts, Philip Nanestad and Justine Sachs. Uh, no Kyle today. He's been fired for bad behavior again due to his precarious nature of his work with us. We can get rid of him any episode we want. So that's just how you operate. And we have two people here from our fantastic new organization, Tiaga, Tertiary Education Action Group Aotearoa. Uh, we have Leon, spokesperson, union, dele- union delegate and tutor, and we have Amy, self-described precarious postdoc, and they're going to tell us what their organization is, how it began. Uh, let's let's start off talking about kind of why you formed Tiaga, maybe a bit about the kind of recent history of these issues, a bit about your kind of kopapa theory of change, how the organization got started, and then we can kind of slide sideways into talking about the values behind that and how you're how you've been finding it the wins and losses and inevitable kind of struggles of <laughs> combining academia and activism I suppose uh, so who wants to go first let's go to, let's go Amy first sure hey guys yes as I said oh, as I was wonderfully introduced uh, precarious postdoc here uh, it does not get better so yeah so we formed last year uh, mid-pandemic you know while things were calm and casual and um, it was sort of in response to a lot of changes that were happening at a university level that were kind of top-down and reactionary to the cuts to international students um, and all that sort of stuff and we were seeing like or you know suspecting that there was going to be massive uh, job losses particularly to casual and fixed-term employees um, because it would be a things of like they didn't have to renew contracts. They wouldn't have to hire people in the following year. Um, you know, I was in department meetings where they were talking about the next year's budget and which jobs they weren't going to offer, but they weren't notifying prospective people at that stage um, who might be applying for those roles. So there was this sort of need that people knew that it was going to be bad, but nobody was communicating and nobody seemed to be doing anything. And then on top of that, there's just been this kind of, if you've worked or been in the tertiary sector kind of uh, long enough, either as a student or as a student worker or as a sort of uh, weirdo kind of like myself, then you've kind of seen how that sausage is made. And it's been kind of bleak for a while. Um, And so COVID just sort of created this perfect storm of, of issues where, we were seeing things like one of our universities, AUT, wanting to introduce a block teaching program where they would have stopped the uh, entire teaching year and restarted it midway through in the middle of a pandemic um, and condensed semester-long courses into, was it four or six-week teaching blocks with like, quote-unquote, consultation? But really, that doesn't necessarily mean that. And so sort of our founding members were involved in getting that stopped. And then we kind of have had like ongoing kind of media engagement and that sort of thing and trying to raise awareness around what it means to be both like a postgraduate student or like a student and then also a student worker. And then also uh, what life looks like after a PhD and all that sort of stuff. So that's kind of really where we came from i guess in a nutshell yeah totally because it's kind of a difficult um sphere right it's a difficult sector in 
as you say, because there are so many different kind of steps to that. So many, I guess, dislocated and alienated aspects to education um, as, as like a function, I suppose, of society. And I was just wondering, maybe Leon can jump in on this one, but obviously this kind of connects with bigger kind of uh, values questions like neoliberalism and managerialism that everyone's been talking about since I got to uni an embarrassingly long time ago. Um, that, <laughs> that, you know, ha- has been a big deal for a lot of people. And it seems bizarre that there hasn't been a more kind of holistic, I suppose, response to that. But yeah, Leon, tell us about that. Yeah, um, it really kind of brought um, what had been happening for like 30 or 40 years to our tertiary education system and it to a head. The COVID crisis, it would, in a way, it was a good thing and it was a shock to the system and made us reflect on on what what it was happening, you know, and as you said, our values, what actually tertiary education is for. Is it for just, you know, selling overseas, trying to bring in as many overseas Asian students in to make the money as a kind of export market? Or is it like like performing some kind of public good or, or, or what have you? Yeah. So although like a lot of people did lose their jobs and a lot of, and there was this kind of shedding of casuals and fixed terms and it was a real shock to the system in a way and it partly that's what brought us together and what formed the group in the first place was a kind of like it forced us to actually reflect on these things and think about what it is we want out of the uh, tertiary education system and kind of galvanized to galvanized us to actually do something about it mm. rather than just kind of existing a bit as as we were in sort of surviving in the in the system as it was fair enough um i i sort of have a question for both of you um either of you could take it but what has been happening in the tertiary education sector in the last 30 to 40 years i mean like if we compare then and now what what has actually been happening yeah i was just reading a yeah i was just reading an article like written in the early 2000s but actually, because I did, I was before last night, I was just doing some homework last night because I realised I didn't actually know the specific steps or the specific reforms that happened in the 90s and the early 90s that actually moved us from the, the prior system that was based on more of kind of universities as a public. And things like, there were stu- it's weird to think, but there was a, there were student grants in the 80s. You know, like people were paid to go to uni instead of paying and getting into debt to go to uni. It's, it, it wasn't that long ago, you know, like it's strange to think about these things really, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, um, those sort of stories from people who did go to uni at a time um, when um, university was a common good and fee-free um, and, and the amazing kind of like culture that kind of um, that created in terms mm. of, I mean, I mean, that was also an era of a lot of student activism mm. and, uh, so I think I think it's really interesting to sort of think about what it, what it could be like as well. I mean, not to idealize or get too nostalgic about the past, but totally. yeah, it's not not such a long time ago, um, really, that it was just radically different. Yeah, it wasn't perfect, was it? I mean, we shouldn't, uh, like, like, as you said, we shouldn't over kind of nostalgize because it was quite sort of elitist. Mm. Not that many people got to go to UD in the eighties, but yeah. At the same time, there was a certain amount of freedom. I mean, the students today, I mean, they're, they're under so much pressure. They have to work part-time and they're getting into heaps of debt. So they're all, already, ultimately, they're, they're already thinking about as soon as they go to uni in instrumental terms, you know, 
like we blame students for being cynical, for only doing the minimum, but it's the system that kind of forces that view that they've got they've got to do be like that to survive to get their qualification right yeah that that kind of um instrumentality i think is a really interesting um kind of basis for a lot of these discussions um because as you say like that is how the entire thing is framed and justified is the you know the polar opposite of a public good it's really Mm. it's really framed um most most commonly as like this is how you make money it's a personal personal enrichment scheme right Mm. the person who gets the top mark at i don't know commercial law or whatever gets a more promising future than the person who gets the top mark in a, a different like less quote-unquote valuable thing so it's all it's all instrumentalized it's all kind of commodified um versus a kind of public good for for the value of a community um and then you know kind of in between there somewhere i suppose you could say is kind of individual self-improvement the the kind of mm. um i guess the tail end of the understanding of kind of a, a liberal education in the most kind of broad terms i suppose um that post-enlightenment kind of ideal which also is obviously very uh, elitist and you know was never available to everybody and it's kind of fundamentally anti-working class in a lot of ways um yeah but i think that that's a really interesting kind of jumping off point to the more recent changes so there, there obviously have been these like structural shifts in the way that it's funded and in new zealand as with a lot of things we were pioneering in our uh, pro-neoliberal uh you know credence we we love we love that shit we we jumped on that real quick (laughs) um yeah and you know labor as well not just not just the right-wing parties yeah well i mean yeah famously uh labor is the one who sort of kicks this all kick this can down the hill if you want to put it that way um but yeah more recently like this is kind of like trying to think of what the the metaphor is here but like inside university baseball um is that we saw the way that universities were funded like changed in the early 2000s so um the introduction of the PBRF which is the performance based research fund which meant that the way that universities got funded was no longer just on enrollments from so funding from the government I should say uh but was also based on the research outputs and the research quote unquote performance of their staff so universities would be ranked in terms of um the like meta ranking score um of their staff um and so that became 20% of the total existing uh funding um was became like a competitive pool that the eight universities uh, could compete each other for um and what you saw from that was that there was the specific kind of clauses within the PBRF which focus in on research outputs uh, over something like teaching as in terms of what the function of a university is. Um, and so what that means is that staff are really pressured uh, into focusing on their te- uh, sorry focusing on their research and then uh, universities started casualizing their teaching force because uh, so universities aren't assessed on, fun fact, are not assessed on uh, fixed-term uh, contracts of less than a year. So it was an easy way to sort of push, push a lot of their teaching workload onto uh, fixed-term staff because those staff would then be excluded from PBRF assessment, meaning that the majority of the staff that were being assessed could focus more on their research 
and then therefore they would have an overall higher rank because the the teaching only staff were kind of sequestered off to a so it's a little bit of gamifying their mm-hmm. their workload or sorry their workforce I should say and then that's just kind of stuck you know um, and you can see this a lot uh, in terms of how a lot of our universities operate uh, you'll have even full-time teaching only staff um, who don't have um, any sort of research component to their job uh, even um, particularly in STEM fields that's quite common so yeah so it just sort of kicked off this whole thing where the inside meta narrative of universities was research 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 and then within that there's different kinds of outputs that are valued more than others which also kind of can leave like a a dirty taste in your mouth depending on what you want to do with your research or what you think is a valuable output right um it can kind of force you into you know the high performance you know high ranking journals uh versus maybe doing something for your community or like that kind of thing and giving that back um so and then the outside what everyone sees a university as is like a place for people to learn i mean you know and like the way that we advertise our universities overseas the way that we're sort of ranked as places to go and study but that's not actually necessarily the bit that they're focused on internally because that's the bit that is fixed for them in terms of funding like how many students they have is how much funding they get but if you have like these really high output like staff and you gamify your teaching workforce then we can get more money here so those kinds of shifts and changes have you know just set off a lot of these waves in terms of the way that uh universities kind of structure their labor force you know yeah. so yeah, yeah wow that that's pretty um that's pretty damning <laughs> as someone who's spent you know quite a bit of time at uni but hasn't particularly looked into it that's i think that's a really good short kind of analysis of it to to kind of show that construction of two tier uh value systems cuz yeah when you um when you started talking about uh being measured on output i was immediately thinking well the unavoidable uh result of that is going to be what gets measured right like what's what's the priority then who is the funder i.e. the government all of us prioritizing when they make these decisions but then as you as you said at the end there like it's even more than that because the two tier system is internal as well as external to the organization right so the teaching is deprioritized the more that the research is prioritized and then you know research in inverted commas i suppose because it's what kind of research like what's the what's the research these people actually uh will give you uh magic brownie points for or gold stars or whatever um and then that's what gets funded so yeah it's a, it's very much like a what gets measured gets managed kind of depressing reality right and that's and that hasn't been wound back since since that was uh put in yeah, no, I think, no. yeah th- there's some changes being suggested aren't there to pbrf yeah there are um even you know people who are quite uh yeah they they're, they're not super great but there are changes being proposed it's not like a complete like overhaul and go um maybe we shouldn't do this but um you know it relatedly um this is again a bit of the that inside meta narrative but like in terms of how they 
you know, you think about like sort of small research roles or like research assistants or people who help get projects done. So there's a, a focus on putting that work on PhD students in particular versus, for instance, uh, a postdoc. So you've seen also there's been a, a, there's been a bit of discussion um, kind of in the academic media, I want to say, about the fact that, you know, funding for postdocs is really slim because universities charge exorbitant overhead. So it's at least like 100 to 105% of salary. So if you're making, uh, if, you're, if you're, uh, your salary for your postdoc is 80 grand, then they have to budget, then your, the researcher in their grant has to budget 160 grand a year uh, just for one job. But for PhD Whoa. students, because PhD students are part of um, the, the, you know, they'll, they're, they're a student, right? So they get some level of funding from the government. Um, the overheads are way less and they can charge. So the stipends are also set way less as well. So for the price, you know, in the, for the price that you would get one postdoc in a year, you know, say that it's, uh, let's do some math, say that it's 180 grand like that they have to budget in there uh, when they apply for a grant, uh, they could get three PhD students for that same price or more potentially if they have like some kickbacks. So the postdoc, you know, research labor is going to be counted because most postdocs go for more than a year, some don't. So that will feed back into PBRF, but PhDs won't because they're students technically. So that's another way of kind of that you can get them to do a lot of the quote unquote grunt work, um, a lot of the number crunching, a lot of the data gathering, a lot of the initial analysis, and maybe even drafting publications so that you can get those outputs out faster. And it's another way of kind of, again, like sort of, yeah, gamifying and doing some creative accounting, I guess, with your with your workforce and where that labor is being done. Yeah, and you get an oversupply. It contributes further to the oversupply of PhDs and the undersupply of jobs for those PhDs to go into once they graduate, eh? I mean, um, when I was doing my master's, um, someone described that as a, you know, described the whole system as a pyramid scheme. And listening to you talk again, I can't help but feel, you know, that that is a really apt way of seeing that, um, especially with, yeah, the way that PhDs, the ways PhDs are being structured to do that grunt work for, you know, poverty pay, well below the minimum wage. It is, it, it's technically a student, but you're technically a student, but you're actually doing work, you're producing value for the university. Um, and yeah, uh, to, and it's all sort of gamified and hidden away, but that is the reality. And, and I guess, um, talking to academics, there's a lot of mystification around that. I mean, Amy, you've just put it really bluntly and really simply, but it's very interesting to me that you don't, a lot of, uh, the, you know, I don't know if we don't have tenure, whatever you want to call it. Do we have tenure? You know, like permanent academics. We have oh, permanent oh, academics, Pierre. Wait, so yeah, this is a good distinction to make. So a lot of people hear about like tenure track or tenured academics. Uh, we don't have that in New Zealand per se. Uh, we have something called confirmation, uh, which means that for the first, I think it's three years, but I'm not sure because 
this is Amy puts her cynical hat on for a moment. Um, jobs come up so infrequently that I actually don't know the specifics around how long you're in the confirmation period for, but you're sort of more, you're like semi-permanent uh, for a period of time until you have confirmation and then you become a permanent member of staff. Uh, but all of our staff are uh, subject to or vulnerable to restructures, mm-hmm. which is kind of another thing that you've seen uh, over the last sort of 12 months in response to COVID. So we don't have tenured academics. Mm-hmm. Our permanent staff are as secure as other Work permanent employees. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're just regular, you know, employed people. But and then secure. you have the... Pro- yeah. Gainfully, gainfully employed um, uh, workers, right? <laughs> in a sense. Yeah. That occupy yeah. a somewhat, I would say, like, a, you know, it is a, an increasingly like an, an elite position, not maybe, I mean, I'm not sure how much they get paid, but simply because of how competitive it is, right, and how difficult it is to attain those um, positions. But um, uh, I suppose I, I just wanted to, yeah, so I wanted to ask, like, so things have been bad since the introduction of uh, PB, PRBF, is that what you said? Uh, PBRF. PBRF. Now, who was that introduced by? Was that under the the the, the Clark government? I think it was. Uh, was it early two thousands? Yeah. Yeah, two thousand and three is when it came in. I don't know. That was before my political brain switched that on. Was, That's that embarrassing. Was the Clark, isn't it? Yeah, it was the Clark government. Yeah, National came in two thousand and eight. Yes. So yeah. Is that a uh, was that a mighty mayor of Auckland move then was that a, was that a goffism? There was <laughs> a few well there was a few <laughs> things back in the day like he's <laughs> he's been, yeah. least, he's had more things uh, forgotten than forgiven I think it's fair and the about most important his tenure as education. He doesn't regret any of them. No, was <laughs> he in the eighties neoliberal like the first neoliberal government as well? Was he a junior minister? He was. That? I, I think, think he was. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I don't yeah, know. Yeah. Actually, it could yeah, be wrong. he was he was a high achiever. He was always um, he was a good <laughs> time that one. Yeah, sure. yeah, um, yeah. But like a lot of what you're saying just sounds like kind of corporate managerialism, right? A lot of this just sounds like kind of consultancy. Um, this isn't, I think, how most people who hadn't really looked a lot behind the scenes at the uh, misty <laughs> kind of aisles of academia would would think about how these things are justified and structured, like. This is exactly how you'd hear about different parts of like a big corporate, like which parts are performing yeah. well. How do we totally. redesign this so that it's something that people will look at and go, oh, okay, this part is operating at, you know, 1.6% growth per annum. And this part is slightly losing us some money. So how do we get rid of it kind of thing? Yeah. So yeah. how does that work with like leadership structures? Who makes these decisions internally? I know we've talked about like the incentives uh, that, that universities have, but I think it's also worth talking about like who makes these decisions at the universities um, and has there been any notable kind of difference around the country? I don't know. Maybe some universities are much worse than others or much more brutal than others. They're all pretty much of a muchness, aren't they? Like, yeah. I mean, some are slightly more brutal than others. Yeah. We'll all probably, Amy will probably say her VC is probably the worst and I'll probably say my VC is probably the worst. I mean, to be fair, I think yours takes it out in that she (laughs) infamously, uh, Talked about that this was an op- the COVID crisis was an opportunity to Spotify the learning experience. <laughs> oh Did she really? God. Did she? Yeah, really? yeah. God. So if Dude, you ever want to, could never. Wow. So so normally, kind of <laughs> yeah, VCs don't really make any comments about pedagogy or like the, what universities are for from a learning perspective, right? They're normally just you know accountants, basically, aren't they? They're just there to sort of make 
monetary decisions and make cuts when they need to. So they don't offer any kind of vision for going forward for education. And when my VC actually did <laughs> decide to do something like that, she came out and said, yeah, something like, yeah, that, that, that this is an opportunity for us to Spotify the learning experience and turn the learning experience into discrete chunks because that's what the young people want. They don't want kind of to listen to hour long lectures that are one way. They want to kind of engage and consume. Basically, yeah, talking about it that like, like it's something like it's like a media product to be consumed on in this sort of casual way. I sort of, um, I, I, do, I do disagree with that because I, I do think it's, it was more of an opportunity to tick tock um, the learning experience. <laughs> yeah. um, so I know, uh, right? oh. I'll certainly be writing to the editor about that. Spotify, um, <laughs> so 2019. Yeah. Exactly. Um, how do you think that that squares with the, you know, um, the Education Act of 1989, which says that universities should accept their role as the critic and conscience of society? Does that um, align? Does this this sort of structure, the political economy of our, universi- our universities align with that um, objective? Would you say? It depends on where you see that responsibility lying. I would say that contemporary universities now see that as the responsibility of the academic, although now we're kind of seeing um, an ongoing reckoning in the media of that and what it means to be critic and conscience um, and who gets protected and who doesn't. And I think that they just sort of see themselves as being passive vessels for that to occur. Um, and that people will do that within their like sort of academic freedom, essentially, rather than them being, you know, like active participants in uh, being that, because otherwise it puts them at a kind of existential like conflict between these, you know, these outside pressures to conform to managerialism and and conform to sort of capitalist ways of doing things, but then also, you know, their like legal mandate to be a public good um so it's easier for them to kind of essentially privatize that almost yeah well at the least individualize it right they want to say we're allowing this to occur like we're not interfering um you know we're, we're omitting to stop uh academics from expressing legal freedom whatever whatever uh critic and conscience of society uh but they're not they're not creating a structure or encouraging a structure with that uh, actually flourishes if anything right. like it's inimical yeah. to that they're like politicians really aren't they you know <laughs> they're, <laughs> they're kind of, in a way that politicians are there pretty much now just to manage the economy right they're not really kind of solve issues or c- come out in favor or against mm-hmm. things like the housing crisis they're just yeah, yeah. we manage it's very, the void it's very to the to the letter of the law rather than the spirit of the law is what i would say Rather, you know, like it's it's like, well, technically we are doing this thing because we offer these classes that allow people to engage critically about the world that they live in and learn new things and whatever is on like the frontier. And we're also developing research and doing that. But as an institution, we are just going to plead the fifth, right? Like we're just not going to engage in... Uh, what we see as our role as being sort of a public good, but you know, beyond beyond that, beyond just being um, a vessel for education to occur. Mm. How um, I guess my um, my other question would be: How does our universities in Aotearoa compare to um, other places in the OECD? Because I, I we hear a lot about um, you know. 
precarious academia in the States, certainly. Um, we hear a lot about the instrumentalization of, it, of um, academia in the UK. I think the UK is a center point of that sort of kind of those initiatives. Um, so I just, I'm just interested if you guys have any thoughts on how we might compare whether we're along the same track, a little bit different. Um, and I know Australia is also a little bit different as well, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, we're, um, we're, we're kind of on the same track, but we're in a way we're a little bit sheltered, I think, but A, because we're so small and B, we've got a kind of slightly different system. Uh, I mean, as you said, yeah, the US is is quite different in the, the way sort of tenured academics are very protected, but then you've got this vast waves of, I think it's 70 to 75% of, um, of, of precariat teachers supporting that, enabling that sort of freedom. So the tenured academics have got a bit more protection, I think, than the, than the permanent academics do here. But that's at the expense of the kind of a huge kind of swathes of suffering. Mm. Um, and in the UK, yeah, I mean, I, you probably hear from my accent. It's just it's just a shitstorm there at the moment. <laughs> and you've got you've got the very diff- you've got the kind of very right wing kind of right wing populist conservative government there. And in Australia as well, you've got similar thing that kind of just that uh, governments that just kind of attack this kind of fantasy that they hold that universities are still these kind of places of left-wing activism and yeah what <laughs> which which it hasn't been for a long time so no exactly and i mean in terms of actual leadership and kind of what matters at the, at universities if anything it sounds like the opposite from what you've been saying is that yeah. there's this kind of uh depressing i suppose like nadir of interest in the actual the world of public good right there's this very kind of instrumentalized individualized everyone out for themselves approach to education that's been encouraged over the last couple of decades and every kind of subsequent decision to that builds on it right it's not it's not a it's not even a linear acceleration of those values but every new uh kind of contractual obligation or uh privatization or uh precarity in a job uh where other where in the past you might have had more room to kind of actually investigate something or do something for a community, as Amy said uh, near the beginning, is has been disincentivized as much as they can possibly get away with, right? Which is as depressing as it can be when it comes to something as as critical as education. And this is this is the more, I suppose, devil's advocate question that I wanted to throw in at some point was um, when you have these conversations with people who are kind of liberal centrists or have a more kind of technocratic understanding of things, um, you often get the kind of, well, you know, these are privileged people anyway, defense, mm. right? There's this thing that always comes up that is kind of saying, well, you know, it's only rich kids going to university anyway. So it's an, isn't it okay that they have to struggle for a bit in order to make more than other people? Like if the comparison is, uh, I don't know, a part-time, whatever, hospitality workers or nurses, I suppose, Justine would say, like there are these other critical roles in society um lower income backgrounds right so i don't think it's class so much but it's definitely lower income backgrounds um so how do you respond to that i mean that is that's just a classic uh attack right and this gets brought up every time we talk about student allowances or student fees and surely that's a similar kind of argument that you hear when talking about uh paid doctorate or postdoctorate positions right it's tough it's really tough because people look at universities as places of prestige right like and I will say that not everybody 
uh, gets to go to university. Not everybody can afford to go to university. Um, not everybody can, not, not, you know, university isn't the right environment even for everybody. So I do understand that there is a degree, and this is kind of like a, a holdover as well from like what universities used to be as these sorts of, where they, they themselves were marketing themselves as kind of elite institutions. And then they were like, oh, maybe that's a bit bad. Um, and so now they're like, you know, we're, we're part of the community, quote unquote. Um, but the people who teach, like, you know, they're these big buildings in like the center of town and the whole sort of, you know, environment cosmos that surrounds them is this sort of like, this is like the ivory tower, this place to be. Um, and so that means that, you know, you can't tell when you go into a lecture theater, if your lecturer is there full-time, part-time or what their working conditions are. You just don't know. And you don't know that about your tutors necessarily either, unless they tell you. Um, so that's, you know, that's always a hot tip that I have for anybody is to just inform people because usually students are scandalized and they just, so they, it just seems so glamorous and so sort of prestigious to have that position and to be the person who is educating 500 people or however many. But so that makes us kind of an unsympathetic crowd. I will say that. It makes us a quite like publicly quite an unsympathetic crowd. But the realities of it is that people have to stitch together multiple jobs to make a wage. PhD students are doing research, are doing work for the universities that they get, you know, benefited from, that they benefit from even after uh, the students will graduate because if they're contributing to a project and then that increases their supervisor's PBRF score, not to bring it back to the PBRF, uh, but when that funding round comes around, that funding is locked in for five years. So that can kind of eclipse that student, um, but they're being paid less than minimum wage to do that work, even though if they were doing that job in the private sector, they would be making, you know, almost $100,000 easy. Mm. You know, I think I, I think um, that that those lines about how these are just privileged groups of people who are, you know, um, elite and should be lucky enough to do these jobs actually makes um, higher education like all of the things that we're talking about makes higher education completely inaccessible to to many, right? Um, so I just kind of want to point that out, like there's a contradiction there, right? Um, the fact that um, PhDs pay poverty wages means that someone who, um, you know, is in a precarious financial situation, does have dependents, um, et cetera, et cetera, isn't able to do that, even if they might want to. Um, so they're not in the, a position to do so. So I think like, I think that's always what's really important to remember when we talk about this sort of thing is that, you know, if we really take from the starting point that education and I, and I you know, I really truly you know, I think, uh, believe this, education is a human right. Um, and that we, sh and that university should be the critic and conscience of society and that a well, you know, educated populace is a, a civically engaged populace that is able to sort of, you know, grapple with some of the issues and things that come up in any democratic society. Uh, we should want to make um, education accessible and we should fight for that. Um, and I, I guess, yeah, would you guys agree with that? <laughs> Yeah, totally. I couldn't. I couldn't no. agree more. Yeah. 
Because- no, yeah, no, 100%. And that's, that's the thing is that it is so, and that, you know, that's what the thing I was saying at the beginning is that it is, you know, a lot of people don't get to do this, you know, um, and like there's been a conversation happening online about PhD stipends as a, for instance, that's sort of why it's kind of top of mind for me. And the amount of people that I have seen contributing to that, talking about how, you know, IRD got in touch with them to figure out like how it was that they were managing to survive on a, like on their stipend and like piecing together like income uh, while trying to support a family, you know? Um, And so it is, it isn't easy. And a lot of people will leave. Um, A lot of people will, you know, will work pretty much full time on top of their, um, their PhD while they're doing their PhD full time, um, just to try and make ends meet, just to try and make those things work. And so, yeah, it, it, yeah, that that reality is just is really quite uh, tragic and makes it inaccessible because it's becoming one of those things where having just a high school education, you know, on the kind of global idea of what is acceptable as like going into a job is no longer enough you know so it's it's necessary but then also like people aren't getting access to necessities which is a problem as you said yeah I mean I think I think you're right and there's a lot of pressure now um on people to take on you know enormous amounts of debt to go to university and there's very little financial support available to students as well I mean like let's not forget that you know I think there was a some statistics out of the UK that over half of um high school graduate leavers are now going to university so I also think that it's not a small group as I think people want to point out try to make out of people who are going on to higher education because the um there is just this huge pressure on people now to go do higher education because your high school you know degree uh, diploma is not enough um any longer to secure a kind of stable uh working class middle class existence um in the you know fucked up economy we find ourselves in yeah no totally i mean exactly right that's that's the problem like i know i posed this question but very clearly from like a i hate it that's why i need to hear more people (laughs) hating it uh, position um yeah but like there's a reason that it's an arms race right and it's not the students pushing that like there's an enormous amount of pressure and as um leon and amy have both been saying like that's that's been passed down right that's part of the political and um political economy i suppose of society that's been developing is this kind of well what if you have a what if you have a something with honors like maybe we'll hire you instead and it it becomes very individualized to that extent and that's how people are getting measured and therefore getting rewarded right it's it's messed up i I think it speaks a lot to like the you know downward uh, social mobility of the of the middle class right and that increased competition for these so-called elite kind of positions like academia as as a career path is to you know my mind especially in some places becoming literally just an impossible impossible impossibility right for um for the vast majority of people um and that and you know and these are these are scholars whose work that we are losing out on as well like i i kind of 
think about that you know how many people are not able to contribute who have something to contribute because of the fucked up way that we have structured education yeah right in the university system isn't sort of set up to actually sort of educate kiwis as well like most of our industries are actually like they benefit people abroad you know it's geared up to attract international students that's what it's all about not as and that's been really made clear in the in the post-covid era you know like all of a sudden our borders became closed but our universities still couldn't sort of cater to the huge demand that's been coming from Mm. domestic students with everybody a lot of people losing their jobs and wanting to retrain I mean my own university Massey actually we're up to our quotas because we have these quotas dictated to us by the TEC the tertiary education commission and so we're up to our limits so we've actually stopped taking domestic students in for the rest of the year because of this weird rule where we can only go up to over 105 percent over our what was estimated like two years ago before covid hit <laughs> so, oh, so wow. we're now in the absurd position of all these sort of kiwis wanting especially because mass is more about distance learning wanting this kind of flexible distance learning to better themselves to give themselves as you said, Philip, more more of a kind of chance to increase their their, their social capital, the, the, uh, and the, and the, we just we're not able to do that. And we've got sort of like this army of like fixed term staff that would be kind of like on ready and wanting to deliver that, and 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 they're not able to because of the system. It's just yeah, crazy. So, um, is the funding model for our universities broken? Should they are these? Um you know, is it in the public interest to publicly fund universities or should they continue to be sort of uh, dependent on international students and exploiting them? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Can I I find a friend? Yeah, that's a tough one. That's a tough one. It's it's an unanswerable question. It's one of those unknown unknowns. Sorry, I I just wanted to pose something really difficult. Sorry, Justine. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I know. Um, The international student question is a tough one, I think, because um, people have been talking about this for years, obviously, and it is like one of the great kind of, um, I guess unspoken kind of changes in the in the like uh, econ- economical kind of van- value system of universities in New Zealand in the last 20, 30 years from what I've heard at least, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like there's been this deliberate kind of conflation where uh, when people criticize the fact that universities now have to rely on these, um, you know, less regulated streams of income, i.e. Uh, international students coming to New Zealand who aren't um, as you say, beyond like aren't regulated in the same way, aren't limited in the same way as uh, domestic students are, then that gets used as kind of a cudgel, like a, a sort of populist cudgel. So it's like, oh, oh, don't criticize the fact that this, you know, innocent Indian student wanted to come to New Zealand and be um, educated when of course it's never been about that. No one's saying no. like, don't tell these individuals, no one's telling these individual students not to be, um, not to be educated. But there's this like very deliberate strategy. Like I've I've met people whose jobs it was to go overseas and market New Zealand uh, tertiary education in such a way as to say that the only way that you'll have a good future is to move to New Zealand, do tertiary education here. Uh, it's you know affordable based on you know going into massive debt and then being able to pay it back because you'll have such great income afterwards. Blah blah blah. There's this kind of um, yeah pyramid scheme, as Justine said before, aspect to it that's really like cruel and dehumanizing. Um, and yet there's been a kind of like, th- there's been some really like heroic, um, social justice work on it actually, like 
remember a few years ago, there were those um, Indian students being exploited that uh, there was quite a lot of kind of un union activism around. But on the whole, it's, it's bizarre to me that there hasn't been more kind of agitation around this because it goes both ways, right? Like it is part of the economic damage that's being done to the university as a whole and the um, systemic kind of understanding of that, as you've both been saying. But also, like, it really hurts these people who come to New Zealand under false pretenses half the time and have to rely on non-existent sources of income or uh, a care system that doesn't really look after them properly. There's a bunch of rules that a lot of um, tertiary education providers really aren't equipped to um, look after them, have the kind of, uh, unable to kind of take care of them to the extent that the law requires them to. And it just seems unnecessary. I mean, who, who's gaining from this system? that is really just kind of a, almost like a vampiric <laughs> provision of education. Like it's not education, is it? It's, it's bizarre. No, it, it's exploitation, isn't it? Yeah, it's economics. I mean, and, and the language continues to be framed around, you know, like it's export industry. I'd love for, yeah, I'd, I'd love for international students to come here and we talk about, you know, what they contribute to society in terms of, yeah, you know, increasing our cultural diversity or, yeah contributing to critical conversations improving our our research improving our knowledge you know but no it just always gets talked about yeah what they're contributing to the economy yeah what money they're bringing in and it and it's in a way it's a continuation of um, colonialism isn't it you know like that where th th they're paying these huge sums of money uh, what is it like forty thousand dollars a year money that's been taken out of their sort of emerging economies that could be spent on things like healthcare and education in their own countries. And they're, they're bringing it here and it's just, yeah, being, as you say, vampired sucked up by, yeah, I don't know, these CEO VCs. I don't know who it's benefiting, really. No one. Well, no one, really. Because mm. it's such a volatile income stream, as we have seen in the last year. And it's just like, it's such a... Yeah, it's such a volatile horse to back. Like you wouldn't pen like your entire like business on this, you know, if you're going to look at universities as a corporate structure, which they kind of are, you know, you wouldn't pen it, you know, everything on that. But that's kind of what they do. They get so much of their funding from them because, you know, they, they're, the government isn't funding them. That's really what it is, is that they make up all of the shortfall and their profit with international students and you know and it doesn't benefit those international students because they aren't informed about things like I don't know the cost of living here as a, for instance and like how they're going to get by um, you know like this is semi-related but you know in my PhD research which is unre unrelated to this issue but I was interviewing um, an international student who was talking about how their budget for groceries was a hundred dollars a month and that they were kind of struggling to keep to that because uh, in their home country that would be more than adequate but they couldn't do that here and so they were like oh I'm trying to figure out all of these ways to kind of figure out how to do food for this amount of money and I'm you know blowing it every week uh, or you know every month and I was like uh, you know I was really shocked by that but then you know we're doing them a disservice that duty of care that we should have to you know all of our students but especially our international students who are trusting them you know themselves their livelihoods their you know their person 
um, to come here and to give us their knowledge too, because that's the other thing that happens as well is that that knowledge is an exchange. You know, you're learning, mm-hmm. you're you're developing those relationships. You're you're contributing to research that is happening here. If you're a postgraduate student, you know, you're enhancing all of those things. They are an asset to this country, um, but we don't treat them like that, mm-hmm. or we 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 treat them like an asset in the financial kind of sense, right? Which isn't great we should sort of treat them with respect and and that kind of thing but Mm. that's not really what's happening I mean we treat them as commodities which is just disturbing um I I really want to ask you guys about sort of the history of um sort of union activity and organizing against um the financialization and the embeddedness of neoliberalism in our universities but before I do that um, and yeah, how you came to form um, bec- and what was missing before you formed, because I mean, there are tertiary unions, um, so it would be good to kind of talk to you guys about that. But before I do, I guess I just want to ask, how, how do we, um, how do we fix this? What do we, what can we, you know, what, what is a um, just and uh, uh, a better future for our tertiary education sector look like? <laughs> well, that'll go at once. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was like, oh, Thanks, well, I just Justin. answered the last one. Leon will take the, the baton on this one. But... <laughs> I was, uh, yeah, leaving that one to you. Oh, gosh. Oh, thanks. Thanks. Thanks, friend. Well, I mean, the first obvious answer is that it just needs more funding. Like, it's chronically underfunded. Um, we've been asking for more funding for a long time. I think it needs more you know, honestly, it needs more government oversight and regulation uh, in terms of the ways that VCs are some of the high, highest paid public officials, you know, and there was like that big scandal last year about uh, the University of Auckland spending $5 million on a house for its VC. And so they are really profitable as well. Like, you know, they, you know, the University of Auckland, and I'm just saying that because that was the one that I was affiliated with. Um, but you know, they turned like a $36 million profit the year before last uh, in their financial report. And so it's big money that they're making, um, but it's not being sort of redistributed or re-put back into the system. It's just sort of being hoarded like a non-public institution as a, for instance. Um, So I think it needs more regulation, more money, and just kind of like an overhaul in terms of like its values and a reminder of what it's actually there to do. Do you have anything to add, Leon? What do you think? Yeah, it's really hard to know where to start, isn't it? <laughs> You've burn it. So many- Maybe burn it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, some people do think that maybe because like the university just isn't a force for public good anymore. And, sort of, and Raywin Connell's kind of touched on this in her book, hasn't she, a bit Um a good university that maybe i mean and even things like you know positive things that are happening like my university is supposed to be coming becoming treaty-led but even then that becomes you know a question of you know is it just appropriate is that just becoming like an excuse for an appropriation and to increase massey's brand capital you know what i mean because it yeah. looks good mm-hmm. treaty <laughs> led by who like that's the, that's the thing by the like, crown <laughs> ah yes <laughs> <laughs> by Kelvin Davis, famous yeah. pro treaty. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, it's difficult, right? That that kind of question, like restructuring an mm. entire sector of society. <laughs> it's not really but, a work of five minutes. That's absolutely. Cool. But like I, I, I read time. Yeah, yeah, no, fair enough. I mean, as a precarious worker, I'm sure you have plenty of time to rewrite an entire 
sector design of an entire sector of organization. Um, I was just going to say, though, it's obvious that you've got some uh, momentum behind your uh, diagnosis and some of the like solutions that you've been offering because you're open. I was looking at your open letter on your uh, website, Tiago website. Um, you've got like over 600 signatures from like pretty high, high place, prominent academics and um, tertiary education employees of various kind of stripes around the country. So obviously you've found some pretty fertile ground there. Like people seem to have fairly uh, compatible complaints, right? You, you must have had some pretty good kind of generative conversations. Yeah, it really hits a nerve. Like I'm a, I joined late on in, in the piece, like I wasn't there at the start. But yeah, I saw Luke, uh, the chairman's, uh, Tiago's chairman's, his sort of opinion piece and stuff. And I, I, I really saw like sort of, as we were touching on before, my own kind of working conditions represented, like as we sort of said before, that yeah, people tend to think of like university working in the university or being an academic or being a lecturer as this really glamorous job, and and, and the realities of that just doesn't come out in the media, isn't represented in the media. The reality of real struggle and hardship, and and so yeah, things like that, getting getting media coverage like that, and just getting a voice getting people to think hold on a minute not everyone are the same not every academic is in a kind of cushy 100 grand a year secure tenured permanent job um yeah that that itself is just really important to sort mm. of stake our claim stake a place of representation if you know what i mean that, not um, to um put any pressure on mm. um Tiaga or mm. you two but um i think it's you know uh, useful to remember that Karl Marx uh, was an unemployed, um, embittered <laughs> academic who, uh, you know, sought an alternative academic career. And I mean, we know how that turned out, right? So just no pressure. But, <laughs> but when I well, look to me, then I could just like, you know, grow a beard and become Karl Marx. I'm into yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so what was um, Tiaga came and sort of took a space that hadn't been really been filled. What, what was um, the unions in the tertiary sector not sort of doing? What was happening there? Oh gosh. Um, well, we sort of formed as a kind of uh, collective of sort of pissed off, precarious. PhD students uh, and uh, postdocs, really, like early career researchers is sort of the, the, the official term. But depending on what organisation uh, you look at in terms of that definition, that can be somebody who is 10 years post-PhD, uh, which is kind of damning. Um, so we were like, you know, people who were like fresh out the gate uh, of their PhD and into the free fall that is trying to find a job. Um, and we were just watching, well, we were waiting first when they announced that, like, well, when there was, you know, discussions happening that there would be maybe less tutors or that research assistants weren't going to get their contracts renewed and that universities were instigating hiring freezes. Like, these were the kinds of things that we saw happening in the sort of March, April space. And then... You know, we were like, well, we'll wait to see what the union says. And at the time they said, oh, well, we'll wait and see what the government does. Um, and we thought, huh, that's that just sort of illustrated to us um, kind of a, a lack of understanding as to what the lived experiences were for precarious employees that 
you can't just wait and see. Like you, we didn't have, I remember having a, a Zoom meeting, you know, with the other founding members and we were just like, we, we can't afford, we like literally cannot afford to wait and see. Like that's not an option for us. Um, and that was kind of where that open letter came out from was we were like, well, I guess we can do this. Like, I guess we'll do this because there's just sort of a lack of, I think because, you know, there's within our tertiary unions, their membership in terms of casual staff is quite low. They've been trying to increase those memberships. And I'm not sure, you know, uh, how successful that has been. But, you know, a lot of a, a lot of casual staff don't become union members for whatever reason. Uh, but that means that the representation of casual staff and fixed-term staff, I should say, is really low. Mm. Um, and so, like, a union is supposed to be there to sort of fight for its members and to represent the interests of its members. But if they're not hearing those voices, if they're not hearing those experiences, and if, you know, it's really hard for them to be responsive and kind of, as I was saying at the beginning, to try and capture people who are only kind of employed for three months, Um so, you know, it's like, well, how do you, you know, in, in like traditional bargaining, you know, you might, that, that process might take a year or maybe, maybe not as long. But, you know, some casual contracts are only months long, you know. Um, I, I have known uh, somebody who had a, a casual contract, a research casual contract for two weeks. Um, and Whoa. in that two weeks, they couldn't really do anything because it took that long for admin to actually give them access to the systems that they needed to use. And then it had eclipsed. Um, so, you know, it takes a while for things to kind of get rolling and interacting with the institution. Um, and so quite often those people have been and gone, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. their contracts are, are like at the end of and then they're like, well, What's the point? Um, so there's just a real kind of miscommunication about what the needs are and the fact that they're quite immediate and we can't just wait and see. That's not a reality for us. And then, you know, and there's just that sort of miscommunication between what a union is for, or who they're supposed to be representing and kind of what our needs are. And so we were like, well, we have the experience and we have a certain level of uh, anger and rage. That's always helpful. Um, and we can be quite mouthy online um, as a whole. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. yeah, I mean, that, an, an advocacy organization is, is fundamentally different, right? That it, like that, that level of like, as you say, like as, as Leon said before, just wanting to get into the into the media and into the kind of um, discourse around how ac academia is structured, like these these kind of fundamental flaws, like that's not the um, raison d'etre of the tertiary union, right? It's it's a different it's a different style of organization, and there's no real getting around that, and that's fine. Like it's a different it's a different direction of travel, but obviously it's also disappointing that they weren't standing up for uh, fixed term contracts more before that as well. I guess. Go, go, go. I, I'm just going to say that I think that the union movement needs to um, find a way to represent and to capture these precarious workers because, um, you know, I think um, the university is in some respects a uh, pioneer <laughs> of um, the kind of work that we're increasingly seeing elsewhere. You know, as you can think of um, the precariousness of um, yeah, gig work, 
um, and uh, um, a lot of the things that we're seeing elsewhere. So, you know, I think that that model needs to shift if unions are going to be able to meet the needs of uh, working people in, you know, the, 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 the of the new precariat, right? And and so I'm not sure how, um, but I definitely do think it's an issue. And I think that's an okay, an okay one to kind of just recognise and acknowledge. Yeah, they're still based around kind of locations, uh, you know, people hanging around in staff rooms and that kind of thing, which just increasingly isn't the case, is it? It's still based on sort of nine to five permanent work. Yeah, not just tertiary unions, but most mm. unions, right? Again, the gig economy is kind of this, you know, thinking about that um, that Suez ship, that you know, all those memes about the huge Suez ship with the big, <laughs> massive ship coming in the yeah. back, and these unions kind of looking at the what's what, what are we missing here? Uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, when you when you talk about how seventy five percent of um, academic um, staff in you know the United States are not tenure track, you know, or adjunct, um, how how are we? How is the union movement going to survive in a climate like that? Right? I think, uh, yeah. I mean, as a unionist, I just think that's like something that is quite critical to sort of answer. And I and I do think the union movement has to kind of meet the moment or 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 not uh, be around to. <laughs> to deal to you know in the future yeah. like really it is kind of sink or swim they need to look at history as well i mean people can often talk about the gig economy oh it's this kind of new development that's never been seen before but you know capitalism is always historically hasn't it or it's always used technology to adapt it's been famously every time we think oh we've got capitalism in a corner it's always been famously been able to kind of use technology to find new ways to exploit workers and kind of mm. adapt and, and and get the union kind of movement on the run and uh, maybe maybe we look we need to look at history about how unionism has adapted in the past in the past absolutely yeah even even in like a ivory tower of uh public goods like the university is meant to be right that's the mythology that's the really interesting thing i think about this discussion is that like it really shows how far the creep has got, right? It's it's really at the at the heart of the, um, at least the conception of what the kind of uh, mixed market model, I suppose, is meant to look like. But we're we're coming like reasonably close to time, so I I think uh, yeah, hit us with kind of some some recent kind of maneuvers. Like, what's the next step for Dago? How's it been uh, recently? What's kind of the next strategy? How's the uh, theory of change and Copapa kind of developed? over recent months and yeah where are you where are you heading yeah do you want to do a plug for the survey yeah, that you've been sure, working on sure sure um yeah so we've got a couple of things in the in the works so one of the things that we've been doing is not only doing our advocacy kind of work and kind of just being loud and mouthy on social media is that we're also uh, writing into and contributing to uh, academic literature so that there's kind of a more, uh, it's not just permanent academics writing about precarity, it's also precarious academics writing about precari uh, precarity. Um, so that's something that we're doing actively. And then uh, in terms of, this also points to your question as well, Justine, around, you know, don't uh, you, uh, unions have a mandate uh, to kind of figure out what's happening um, and the answer is yes, and I think that they are aware of that. So um, we've been involved with the TU and NZUSA, which is the national, uh, the New Zealand 
Union of Students Associations and the Early Career uh, Researchers Network um, to build a, a project, a research project into precarious work in the tertiary sector. Um, it's still kind of ongoing. It's not going to be out for a little while yet. We're still in the build phase. Um, but that is the, the hope is to kind of get um, to, to understand, to hear from the people who are in those roles, what those roles are really like, to get an understanding as to how many people are working multiple jobs, how many, like how people are building their wages. Um, and to, and so then we can better, better inform, you know, our, our advocacy becomes like evidence-based rather than anecdotal-based, even though that is still like evidence, right? But like, you know, we have like these numbers that we can take to policymakers, to the government, to uh, the minister, to universities and say, hey, like this is, these are the things that you need to do. And then also, you know, enable like unions to actually do something uh, for their staff and also uh, on behalf of their students as well, because so much academic of this academic labor is done by students. Um, so, yeah, so that's kind of what's on the cards for us at the moment and it's kind of an exciting space and I'm really excited to see what comes out of that to see people actually take an um, you know take the opportunity to tell people what it's like on the ground and tell people uh, what it's like to be in this space so yeah yeah generally awesome. we're kind of we're going through a phase where we're kind of we're realizing we're a small group and that we're very much time constrained. So how can we kind of make good connections with other perhaps more established institutions? And we've been reaching out to uh, our kind of Australian sister organization, Kapow, who are very much bigger than us as well and seeing what we can learn from them. Oh, yeah. that's, a great, that's a great idea. So if people listening want to join or just want to follow you, Give us some, uh, where should they go? Where should people go if they've listened to this and gone, hell yeah, that's what I also think. How do I do that? Uh, on our Twitter handle and our Facebook group, if we if we got, an, we don't have a general email address, do we? Is, is there anywhere else we can? No, that's pretty much the main, the main spot. So you can find us at tega.co.nz. So it's T-E-A-G-A. Look at me being able to spell. Thank you, my education. <laughs> that's that's um, what then, you that's what you have to show for being a postdoc. Yeah. That's what you can oh, look forward I mean, to, everybody. Genuinely, something I say often is that I have many advanced degrees in reading and writing. Um, <laughs> and so, on Twitter, you can find us at uh, Tiga, but there's an underscore between each letter because um, we aren't we don't have enough clout to be able to go and demand another account. Just give us the name that we want. Uh, so that's T underscore E underscore A underscore G underscore A. It's awful. And if you want followers for that reason alone, I understand. Um, and then you can find us if you just, I'm pretty sure if you searched for Tiga uh, on uh, Facebook, you can find us there too. Yeah. So that's, Great, that's yeah. it. Of course, we'll, of course, we'll include links to those, um, those two things. But yeah, like I, I wouldn't be surprised if some people listening to this are also frustrated pseudo academics at various levels or uh, at least tertiary education adjacent. So yeah, I, I can imagine some people listening to this and going, yeah, exactly. That is, that is the issue. And we need someone being louder and a bit more kind of fiery about it, as you've said. 
Absolutely. I mean, when I was doing my most, uh, when I was doing student activism and in graduate school, I, I really wish it, you guys had existed then because I would have jumped right into that. <laughs> I was very, very bitter and twisted. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. As anyway. all the best tertiary students are, right? Yeah. Come on in. The water is warm and fine. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely. Awesome. All right. Thanks, everyone. Uh, we better wrap up there before um, everyone drifts off to sleep. But thanks so much. Thanks, Amy. Thanks, Leon. Thanks, Justine. Uh, thank me. Great work. Great work hosting me and Justine. We're, we're so good at that. Um, thanks for coming along and doing the, the spokes job for Tiaga. It's, it's really exciting, I think, and like promising that an org- organization like this has come together. Um, even if, as you say, you're, you're small and angry and that's what's driving it. That's what starts the best organizations, right? Yeah. So fingers crossed and um, stay in touch. And then Obviously, Amy, as that as that project comes to fruition, like get in touch and let's talk about that more because that sounds really exciting and hopefully gives a more kind of uh, material platform to um, advocate from. Yeah, 100%. Happy to be back. Awesome. Cool. All right. Uh, have a good week, everyone. That's been one of 200. Cheers. Have a good one. Relentless routines The dying embers of your dreams is the lie Will you die keeping your glass half full? The relentless routines, the dying embers of your dreams, is a lie aspirational. Will you die keeping your glass half full? You don't hate your nation, you hate nationalism. You don't hate your nation, you hate nationalism